Chapter Twenty Five, Part One of New Grub Street. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bridget Gage. New Grub Street by George Gissing. Chapter Twenty Five, Part One. A Fruitless Meeting. Refuge from despair is often found in the passion of self-pity, and that spirit of obstinate resistance which it engenders. In certain natures, the extreme of self-pity is intolerable, and leads to self-destruction. But there are less fortunate beings whom the vehemence of the revolt against faith strengthens to endure in suffering. These latter are rather imaginative than passionate. The stages of their woe impress them as the acts of a drama, which they cannot bring themselves to cut short. So various are the possibilities of its dark motive. The intellectual man who kills himself is most often brought to that decision by conviction of his insignificance. Self-pity merges in self-scorn, and the humiliated soul is intolerant of existence. He who survives under like conditions does so because misery magnifies him in his own estimate. It was by force of commiserating his own lot that Edwin Reardon continued to live through the first month after his parting from Amy. Once or twice a week, sometimes early in the evening, sometimes at midnight or later, he haunted the street at Westbourne Park where his wife was dwelling, and on each occasion he returned to his garret with a fortified sense of the injustice to which he was submitted, of revolt against the circumstances which had driven him into outer darkness, of bitterness against his wife for saving her own comfort rather than share his downfall. At times he was not far from that state of sheer distraction which Mrs. Edmund Yule preferred to suppose that he had reached. An extraordinary arrogance now and then possessed him. He stood amid his poor surroundings with the sensation of an outraged exile, and laughed aloud in furious contempt of all who censured or pitied him. On hearing from Jasper Milvain that Amy had fallen ill, or at all events was suffering in health from what she had gone through. He felt a momentary pang, which all but determined him to hasten to her side. The reaction was a feeling of distinct pleasure that she had her share of pain, and even a hope that her illness might become grave. He pictured himself summoned to her sick chamber, imagined her begging his forgiveness. But it was not merely, nor in great part, a malicious satisfaction. He succeeded in believing that Amy suffered because she still had a remnant of love for him. As the days went by, and he heard nothing, Disappointment and resentment occupied him. At length he ceased to haunt the neighborhood. His desires grew sullen. He became fixed in the resolve to hold entirely apart and doggedly await the issue. At the end of each month he sent half the money he had received from Carter, simply enclosing postal orders in an envelope addressed to his wife. The first two remittances were in no way acknowledged. The third brought a short note from Amy. As you continue to send these sums of money, I had perhaps better let you know that I cannot use them for any purposes of my own. Perhaps a sense of duty leads you to make this sacrifice, but I am afraid it is more likely that you wish to remind me every month that you are undergoing privations, and to pain me in this way. What you have sent, I have deposited in the post office savings bank in Willie's name, and I shall continue to do so. A. R. For a day or two, Reardon persevered. In an intention of not replying, but the desire to utter his turbid feelings became in the end too strong. He wrote, I regard it as quite natural that you should put the worst interpretation on whatever I do. As for my privations, I think very little of them. 
they are a trifle in comparison with the thought that I am forsaken just because my pocket is empty. And I am far indeed from thinking that you can be pained by whatever I may undergo. That would suppose some generosity in your nature. This was no sooner posted than he would gladly have recalled it. He knew that it was undignified, that it contained as many falsehoods as lines, and he was ashamed of himself for having written so. But he could not pen a letter of retraction, and there remained with him a new cause of exasperated wretchedness. Excepting the people with whom he came in contact at the hospital, he had no society but that of Biffin. The realist visited him once a week, and this friendship grew closer than it had been in the time of Reardon's prosperity. Biffin was a man of so much natural delicacy that there was a pleasure in imparting to him the details of private sorrow. Though profoundly sympathetic, he did his best to oppose Reardon's harsher judgments of Amy, and herein gave his friend a satisfaction which might not be avowed. "'I really do not see,' he exclaimed, as they sat in the garret one night of midsummer, "'how your wife could have acted otherwise. "'Of course I am quite unable to judge the attitude of her mind, "'but I think, I cannot help thinking, from what I knew of her, "'that there has been strictly a misunderstanding between you. "'It was a hard and miserable thing that she should have to leave you for a time, "'and you couldn't face the necessity in a just spirit. "'Don't you think there's some truth in this way of looking at it?' As a woman, it was her part to soften the hateful necessity. She made it worse. I'm not sure that you don't demand too much of her. Unhappily, I know little or nothing of delicately bred women. But I have a suspicion that one oughtn't to expect heroism in them, any more than in the women of the lower classes. I think of women as creatures to be protected. Is a man justified in asking them to be stronger than himself? "'Of course,' replied Reardon, "'there's no use in demanding more than a character is capable of. "'But I believed her of finer stuff. "'My bitterness comes of the disappointment.' "'I suppose there were faults of temper on both sides, "'and you saw at last only each other's weaknesses. "'I saw the truth, which had always been disguised from me. "'Biffin persisted in looking doubtful, "'and in secret Reardon thanked him for it. "'As the realist progressed with his novel, Mr. Bailey Grocer,' He read the chapters to Reardon, not only for his own satisfaction, but in great part because he hoped that this example of productivity might in the end encourage the listener to resume his own literary tasks. Reardon found much to criticize in his friend's work. It was noteworthy that he objected and condemned with much less hesitation than in his better days. For sensitive reticence is one of the virtues want to be assailed by suffering, at all events in the weaker natures. Biffin purposely urged these discussions as far as possible, and doubtless they benefited Reardon for the time. But the defeated novelist could not be induced to undertake another practical illustration of his own views. Occasionally he had an impulse to plan a story, but an hour's turning it over in his mind sufficed to disgust him. His ideas seemed barren, vapid. It would have been impossible for him to write half a dozen pages— and the mere thought of a whole book overcame him with the dread of insurmountable difficulties, immeasurable toil. In time, however, he was able to read. He had a pleasure in contemplating the little collection of sterling books that alone remained to him from his library. The sight of many volumes would have been a weariness, but these few, when he was again able to think of books at all, were as friendly countenances. He could not read continuously, but sometimes opened his Shakespeare, for instance, and dreamed over a page or two. From such glimpses there remained in his head a line or a short passage, which he kept repeating to himself wherever he went. 
generally some example of sweet or sonorous meter which had a soothing effect upon him. With odd result on one occasion, he was walking in one of the back streets of Islington, and stopped idly to gaze into the window of some small shop. Standing thus, he forgot himself, and presently recited aloud, Caesar, tis his schoolmaster, an argument that he is plucked, when hither he sends so poor opinion of his wing, which had superfluous kings for messengers, not many moons gone by. The last two lines he uttered a second time, enjoying their magnificent sound, and then was brought back to consciousness by the loud mocking laugh of two men standing close by, who evidently looked upon him as a strayed lunatic. He kept one suit of clothes for his hours of attendance at the hospital. It was still decent, and with much care would remain so for a long time. That which he wore at home, and in his street wanderings, declared poverty at every point. It had been discarded before he left the old abode. In his present state of mind, he cared nothing how disreputable he looked to passers-by. These seedy habiliments were the tokens of his degradation, and at times he regarded them, happening to see himself in a shop mirror, with pleasurable contempt. The same spirit often led him for a meal to the poorest of eating-houses, places where he rubbed elbows with ragged creatures, who had somehow obtained the price of a cup of coffee and a slice of bread and butter. He liked to contrast himself with these comrades in misfortune. This is the rate at which the world esteems me. I am worth no better provision than this. Or else, instead of emphasizing the contrast, he defiantly took a place among the miserables of the netherworld, and nursed hatred of all who were well-to-do. One of these he desired to regard with gratitude, but found it difficult to support that feeling. Carter, the vivacious, though at first perfectly unembarrassed in his relations with the city-road clerk, gradually exhibited a change of demeanour. Reardon occasionally found the young man's eyes fixed upon him with a singular expression, and the secretary's talk, though still as a rule genial, was wont to suffer curious interruptions, during which he seemed to be musing on something Reardon had said, or on some point of his behaviour. The explanation of this was that Carter had begun to think there might be a foundation for Mrs. Yule's hypothesis, that the novelist was not altogether in his sound senses. At first he scouted the idea, but as time went on it seemed to him that Reardon's countenance certainly had a gaunt wildness which suggested disagreeable things. Especially did he remark this after his return from an August holiday in Norway. On coming for the first time to the city road branch, he sat down and began to favor Reardon with a lively description of how he had enjoyed himself abroad. It never occurred to him that such talk was not likely to inspirit the man who had passed his August between the garret and the hospital. But he observed before long that his listener was glancing hither and thither in a rather strange way. "'You haven't been ill since I saw you,' he inquired. "'Oh, no. But you look as if you might have been.' I say, we must manage for you to have a fortnight off, you know, this month. I have no wish for it, said Reardon. I'll imagine I have been to Norway. It has done me good to hear of your holiday. I'm glad of that, but it isn't quite the same thing, you know, as having a run somewhere yourself. Oh, much better. To enjoy myself may be mere selfishness. But to enjoy another's enjoyment is the purest satisfaction, good for body and soul. I am cultivating altruism. What's that? a highly rarefied form of happiness. The curious thing about it is that it won't grow unless you have just twice as much faith in it as is required for assent to the Athanasian creed. Oh! 
Carter went away more than puzzled. He told his wife that evening that Reardon had been talking to him in the most extraordinary fashion, no understanding a word he said. All this time he was on the lookout for employment that would be more suitable to his unfortunate clerk. Whether slightly demented or not, Reardon gave no sign of inability to discharge his duties. He was conscientious as ever, and might, unless he changed greatly, be relied upon in positions of more responsibility than his present one. And at length, early in October, there came to the secretary's knowledge an opportunity with which he lost no time in acquainting Reardon. The latter repaired that evening to Clipstone Street, and climbed to Biffin's chamber. He entered with a cheerful look, and exclaimed, "'I have just invented a riddle. See if you can guess it. Why is a London lodging-house like the human body?' Biffin looked with some concern at his friend. So unwanted was a sally of this kind. "'Why is a London lodging-house? Haven't the least idea.' "'Because the brains are always at the top. Not bad, I think, eh?' "'Well, no, it'll pass. Distinctly professional, though. The general public would fail to see the point, I'm afraid. But what has come to you?' "'Good tidings. Carter has offered me a place which will be a decided improvement. A house found, or rooms at all events, and a salary a hundred and fifty a year.' "'By Plutus. That's good hearing. Some duties attached, I suppose.' "'I'm afraid that was inevitable, as things go.' "'It's the secretaryship of a home for destitute boys at Croydon. "'The post is far from a sinecure, Carter assures me. "'There's a great deal of purely secretarial work, "'and there's a great deal of practical work. "'Some of it rather rough, I fancy. "'It seems doubtful whether I'm exactly the man. "'The present holder is a burly fellow over six feet high, "'delighting in gymnastics, "'and rather fond of a fight now and then when opportunity offers. "'But he is departing at Christmas, "'going somewhere as a missionary.' "'and I can have the place if I choose.' "'As I suppose you do.' "'Yes, I shall try it, decidedly.' "'Biffin waited a little, then asked, "'I suppose your wife will go with you?' "'There's no saying.' End of chapter 25, part 1